All right, so I was 15 years old, and my family drove like a long way to get to church. All right, and uh, I, I was a month away from turning 16, and I had had a job, and I bought my first car. And I was so excited because then I got to drive my car to church on my own for youth group. And that like took me to a whole nother level in terms of being in youth group, okay? Because I had access and I could drive my friends and I, had a, I asked the pastor for a key to the building and we got to do all sorts of crazy things, all right? We pretended that we were the worship band and I learned to play bass guitar and all sorts of things, all right? So I was 16 and I thought I was pretty cool, all right? And, and Jesus was who I wanted to do it for. And then my youth pastor did something really weird. I brought a can of Coke to me tonight because he said to me, he said, okay, Jeremiah, I want you to do something for me. Every week from here on, I want you to bring me a can of Coke to youth group every Wednesday night. Like, oh, that's kind of dumb, but all right. I can bring you a can of Coke. I mean, I got a job and I got wheels and I got friends and whatever. I can bring you a can of Coke. That's no, that's no big deal. So I brought him a can of Coke. And I brought him a can of Coke every week for like two years, okay? And I, I mean, I, I just brought him a can of Coke. And, and there was this part of me that was like, I needed to be needed. It was like I needed to be needed. And I think, I don't know about you, and I don't know about what, like what uh, really gets you going, but I think that there are three sort of people that we do life for, like that we like act out for. One is adults. Like some of us, I was this kid. I wanted my youth pastor to think I was the most amazing, the most faithful, that I was a leader, that I was all these things. Some of us, it's our peers, right? We'll do whatever as long as our friends who are sitting near us are like, dude, you are awesome. I would never have the guts to do that. And then there are some of us who are like, we do it for us. Like if you don't make my life better, boring, right? And maybe, you know, probably we should be pointing towards Jesus and saying like, look, I want to live for the glory of Jesus. And that's the challenge of being a disciple. And Luke 9 talks a lot about the challenge of being a disciple. Up until this point in Luke, Jesus has been doing a whole bunch of stuff. He starts as we read the story about how he's born, the, the start of his ministry, how he gathers disciples. He starts to do all of these, these miracles, telling people who he is and what the kingdom of God is like. And then we get we get to Luke 9, and Jesus starts to empower other people to do his stuff. And so we're going to look at that tonight, and we're on 866, 867 in your Bibles, if you want to follow along with that. And, and so I'm kind of breaking this down into sections, into groups, and you'll have questions that are broken down into these sections as well when you break into your small groups. And, and the thing I want to leave you with before we look at the first section of Scripture is not something that you'll hear that's new tonight, because Amanda said it last week, and it's been said over and over and over at Timberwood Church, that the kingdom of God is upside down, right? It looks different than we expect it to. We expect grandness and power and strength and might and all of these things. And what we end up finding is that Jesus lays his life down. He goes, as we're going to find out through the course of tonight, he goes to Jerusalem to die because it's in his death that he is ultimately able to set his people free. 
And there's something that's really paradoxical about that for us. Anybody know what a paradox is? What's a paradox, dude? <laughs> that sentence, that's, that's, a par- that's, a, that's a paradox, how that sentence is supposed to. It's two seemingly contradictory things working together, right? This sentence is complete, but saying it's false? Like, boy, I got to think about that one for a while. That's philosophically deep, right? All right, so we're going to jump into this. Luke 9, 1 through 17 is the first chunk of verses. I'm not going to read it all because there's a lot there, right? So we're kind of doing a skim job. But I'm going to refer to some verses as we go through this. Now, Jesus sends out his disciples to do the work that they've been observing, okay? And verse 2 tells us, if you see it there, he sent them out, what was their mission? To proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Okay, so that's what the disciples are headed out to do. That's their mission, is to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Now, we get then to the next section of 7 through 9, and it says Herod is perplexed by Jesus. Ultimately, we get to the end of that in verse 9, at the very last sentence of that section, it says, and he sought to see him. So Herod sought to see Jesus. So Herod the king is trying to get an audience with the traveling prophet rabbi. That's backwards. Okay, a king should be telling him to come and the, the, the rabbi, the prophet should be seeking an audience with the powerful person. But here's what's kind of crazy about it. Luke doesn't give us any indication that Jesus was even remotely interested. Like crickets from Jesus and like from his people, no callback, no interest, all right? Because Jesus isn't going the power way. He's going to lay down your life because that's really powerful. So they go out, the disciples do this thing, we get to that section of verses 10 and following through 17, and, and the disciples have come back to Jesus on a high, okay? We don't get any real detail about what they've done, except that they had, they, they've returned and they told Jesus. That's what it says in verse 10. Okay, so, so we don't know what miracles were performed. We assume that they proclaimed the kingdom of God and they healed people, all right? And so they're on a high and they're like, we did it, we have arrived. And we get to the story of the feeding of the 5,000. All these people have gathered. They know that what's going on with Jesus is electric, okay? It is the coolest thing in town. It is the latest, hottest thing, and everyone wants to check it out. So these 5,000 men, it says, probably there were more men and women or women and children who were along with these men. Uh, so, but they come, and, and they want to hear from Jesus, and they haven't packed a lunch. And they're following Jesus, and they're like, just a little farther, he'll stop, and then we'll be able to listen to him, and we'll experience the healing and the power and the majesty and all the glory. And they follow him a little farther. Okay, we're getting really far from home, but we're just going to keep following him and see what happens, right? He'll settle in here somewhere. There's a nice grassy spot over there. Maybe he'll teach us. I mean, I'm filling in the blanks, but this is what I imagine as I think about it. And so then, and, and so then Jesus finally stops, and he teaches them, 
And, and the disciples are like, look, they, they're a really long ways away from home. It will cost a lot of money to feed these people. And, and like, we don't have that going on. So you should just send them away now. It's like, it's time to draw a boundary and like, let us party in the celebration of all that God has done. And Jesus says, no, you give them something to eat. Verse 13. So they just came back from being really important. And Jesus calls them to be servants. You give them something to eat. And I imagine probably if I were one of the disciples, I'd be like, nah, we're big time now. Like, we should be the ones being served. And in his commentary, N.T. Wright says, the disciples needed to learn to do what Jesus was doing, to trust God like he trusted God. So Jesus fed the people. And what's interesting about this section in Luke 9, specifically verse 16, is that it parallels the language that Luke later uses and that the other uh, gospel writers use to tell us the story of the communion at the Last Supper when Jesus institutes the Last Supper and when he gives us this thing we now call the Lord's Supper or communion or, or the Eucharist or various things depending on our traditions. It's when we share the bread and the cup together. And he uses the same language in verse 16 of this section in breaking and giving and distributing the bread to the 5,000. Verse 16, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. Luke twenty-two nineteen 19 says, uh, and he took bread, Jesus, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. Do you see that same pattern of things that Jesus is doing? There's something powerful about serving the elements of a simple meal and remembering the presence of God in them. The next section is Jesus asking, it starts with Jesus asking about the crowd's perception of him. Verse 18 and through 27 is this section. And so everyone has seen Jesus being among the prophetic, okay? The, the prophets of the Old Testament. And they saw him as someone who would declare the sins of the nation and who would call the people to repentance, saying, God wants you to be redeemed. And in verse 20, Peter says that he's Jesus, the Messiah. The one who would set God's people free. The one who would heal them and deliver them. Last, and what's interesting about this then is that Jesus tells his disciples not to tell everyone else the Messiah stuff. Again, this ties back to chapter 8 where Amanda talked about last week. Jesus was strategic in his ministry. He told some people to tell everyone. He told other people to remain silent. But then this one is a little bit different. This isn't about evangelizing or spreading the, the news of the, of the kingdom of God. This is about Jesus, uh, this is about knowing who Jesus is. It's about living in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as weird as it is, if you're a risk taker, living in the power of the Holy Spirit is dangerous. Because God calls us to things that are maybe out of our comfort zone. They call us to serve others and lay our lives down and to do things that are kind of weird and radical according to sort of how our culture 
maybe would inform us to live comfortably and to make ourselves important. Jesus then in verses 23 and 24 tells his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Forever, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And he right, translates that verse 23. He says, look, you, you must say no to yourselves and pick up your cross every day and follow me. So we're back to that upside down. Christian ministry is not about me needing to be needed. It's not about myself looking good in the eyes of someone. But it's about the kingdom being the upside down way of following after Jesus. And it seems that Luke is going somewhere with how he's organized all these interactions with Jesus. But then in verse 28, we see it takes eight more days for them to figure it out. In verse 28, now about eight days after these sayings. It's like Jesus gave them time for it all to sink in, that his mission is strategic. It's not about their need to be needed. And then he takes them up the mountain. Are you familiar with the story of the transfiguration? The transfiguration was when Jesus took Peter and James and John and they went up the mountain and they went kind of this small group up on the mountainside and Jesus, all of a sudden, his clothes and his face shone white with light and then Moses and Elijah appeared among them. In verses 29 through 31, as Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But do you know what happens after this whole change in Jesus? Like Peter wasn't going, okay, now this is the ticket. Jesus just needs to come down off the mountain shining white like this and everyone is going to be like, oh my goodness, like this belongs in a Marvel movie. No, Peter was like, hey, here's the thing, Jesus. How about we build some tents up here? And you guys can, we can all just live up here. Like, this is peaceful. This rocks. Like, this is so comfortable. Like, I just want to stay right here. I want to stay on the mountain. <laughs> and Jesus was like, no, that's not how this is lived. The mountaintop isn't where we live. What's interesting about this idea is that they're on the mountain, and it's glorious, but they're talking about Jesus' departure. And the commentators, what's interesting is they, they grab that word departure, and they say, here's the thing, Jesus is going to die in Jerusalem, right? We know that now after the story. But another piece of that, and N.T. Wright kind of grabbed onto this, he said that word departure is also the word that's used in the Old Testament for exodus. Anybody know exodus and the story of the exodus? It's a whole book, the second book of the Bible, and it starts out with how God leads his people out of slavery to Egypt. God is faithful through Moses. You probably watched The Prince of Egypt, right? It's that really, really old, cheesy cartoon, but it's a really cool story, right? Like, it's way before Pixar stuff, but it's pretty cool still, all right? So there's this idea buried in there that not only would Jesus be departing from here to Jerusalem to his death and his resurrection and ascension, but Jesus' departure 
is the process of leading his people, his disciples, the people who would follow him out of the bondage and the slavery of, to sin and to death so that we could be free. What's interesting about how this section ties off and by working all the way through verse 45 with it is that the very next story after coming down from the mountain is the story of a demon-possessed boy who is brought to Jesus. So there's just been this magnificent, earth-shaking, top-of-the-world experience straight to something terrible with this demon-possessed boy who's like convulsing and and causing all sorts of problems physically and, and whatever in this child. And Jesus heals the child. And then... He turns to his disciples right after he heals him. Verse 44 is where I'm looking at. He says, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Straight from the mountain to the valley of the shadow of death. Straight to the reality that Jesus would die. And again, he repeats that idea that happened from last week in verse 8 of chapter 8. Let he who has ears to hear, hear, right? Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. And now Jesus says, let these words sink into your ears in verse 44. He wants his disciples to get it, to get that he's committed to the downward path that leads to glory. That death and resurrection redeems humans. But the disciples aren't getting it. All right, so we got one more section, verses 46 through 62. The disciples have gotten a taste of God's power in the beginning of the chapter. He called, verses 1 and 2 said, He called the twelve together, gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And I told you, I think that type of being needed is intoxicating. And in this kind of end section, do you like how my voice does that? It's like I'm going through puberty again when I get excited. Some of you boys understand what I'm talking about, right? It just never left me. So, so we, get to, we get to verse 46, and we get this section from 46 through 54 where we see the disciples do three things in response to that sort of intoxicating power of being needed. The first is they boast about themselves being best. And we see that in verses 46 through 48. And then if you flip the page to 868, the second one is in verse 49, they feel intimidated by someone who might turn out to be their competition. They say, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop them. They might intimidate us. They might become a threat to us. Like, they might be cooler and better at it than we are, right? And the third one, in verse 54, that section of 51 through 56, there's a village of people who won't receive Jesus and his disciples, and they say, eh, How about we use threats of violence because they're rejecting us? Right? Like, you won't be my friend. Well, I'll beat you up. (laughs) Whatever these silly childhood things are that we do, right? 
oh, you shouldn't like that person because they what? Because they what? What did they really do to you? Like you felt threatened? You felt intimidated? Right? We have these responses where people make us feel smaller than we are, and instead of leaning into that and letting Jesus' power be supreme, we get intimidated and, and we let our human instincts take over. And Jesus is like, nah, that's not how it works. We're going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. And that's the way of the cross. That's the way of Christ. No one gets that Jesus is knowingly walking into a trap. He's walking directly into the mouth of death itself. The perspective of Jesus' followers remains one of this idea of greatness and grandeur, of valor and victory. So we have a paradox going on here. We have two contradictory things happening at the same time. Jesus sees the end, but then at the same time, there's these potential recruits who want to join up. Verses 57 through 62, there's three stories of people who are coming along saying, hey, Jesus either says, follow me, or they're like, hey, I'll come follow. Let me go bury my dad first, or, or whatever it is, right? You can read those in your small group. Jesus sees the end, but there's still people who want to join the cause, N.T. Wright connects this section back to the soils that Amanda talked about last week in chapter 8. It's like Jesus calls them, but then maybe he's discouraging them because maybe the soil of their life isn't ready and he knows that it's going to end in a human sense badly for him in order for him to redeem us through death and resurrection. And we aren't actually told whether or not those three people follow Jesus. So I took my youth pastor a can of Coke every week for like two years. It wasn't glamorous, but it was faithful. And then he sat me down one day and he said, look, here's the thing, Jeremiah. I asked you to do that because you have some leadership potential in you, but you do it for you instead of serving people to love them in Jesus' name. He said, I needed you to be faithful in loving me with a Coke because it was a starting point for you to be able to live out who God made you to be. The lesson that I needed to learn as a young man with leadership potential was that my value wasn't found in pleasing someone. It wasn't in my charisma. It wasn't in my drive to achieve. It wasn't in proving that I was good or worthy or whatever it is. But Jesus wanted me to follow him in steady reliability through serving others. We tend to maybe roll our eyes at the disciples for not getting it, for prioritizing their need to be needed over the clear words of Jesus. But learning to live the upside-down kingdom of God is something I still don't understand. I have to fight to do it every day. And I suspect that it's something you'll experience as well as you commit to follow Jesus. But in his sermon last Sunday, John said these words, and I hurried up and wrote them down because I didn't want to, like, forget them. But they're the exact thing that the disciples and each of us need to hear. He said, we don't have to impress God for him to love us. We don't have to impress God for him to work in us. We don't have to impress God to live our lives in a kingdom way. We don't have to do, do, do to impress God. We have to be near to him and walk in his way. 
and he just loves us. All right? All right. So I took a couple minutes more than I was allowed. Uh, if you have any questions, uh, I would be glad to answer them now. I have no idea how your small groups work, um, but you have some questions, and I would love to hear some of the feedback of what your conversations are if you want to share that later. All right? I would love to pray for you. Uh, Jesus, so much of this life is figured out along the way. And so I pray that even as tonight we find ourselves walking your direction, that you would make us into disciples who follow you and who are confident that we don't have to impress you. Like that you already love us, like you already died to set us free. You already did everything that was necessary. And so in the conversations that are about to happen, would you show up? Would you move in amazing ways? Would you help us talk about our lives in ways that show your hand at work? And Holy Spirit, would you lead us in the upside down way so that we would be found in you, that we would be a light, that we would be people of joy and of hope and of conviction and of your kingdom. We pray this in your name. Amen.